0: Appreciate, as I said, your attention to the things that we've gone on before and the singing. And now I want to turn our attention to the lesson this morning. Last week we began a lesson on what happens to us when we die based on some questions we received here recently. This is a topic that comes up, seems like, fairly regularly uh, in people's minds. And there's a lot of confusion on this subject because... There's a lot of teaching going on in the various religious circles or in the world that simply contradicts what the Bible says. And so people have a lot of misconceptions about it. It's a lot simpler than people make it, because we're going to talk this morning more specifically, not only about what happens when you die, but really what happens at the end of time, at the end. And we'll see something about that. It's, It's really much simpler than people make it. But I think there's a lot of misinformation about this, as I said, in religious circles that is not helpful to people at all. The idea, for example, that uh, your grandmother's looking down on you when you have your wedding, or uh, uh, Uncle Johnny's watching you play football in high school, this simply is not what the Bible teaches. That may be comforting. You don't usually think that. When maybe Uncle Johnny's watching you go to the strip club. You don't think of it there, you know. Or when you're passed out drunk or on a drug high, you, know, you don't think Grandma's watching you then. But if she's watching one, she's watching the other, is that what the Bible says, though? No, it doesn't. So people use these things, emotional things, to their advantage. And I, I think that the, if, it were, if it were true, the Bible would have told us that. If it were useful to us, God would certainly allow it. But he doesn't allow that. And so we, we looked at some of those things a little bit last week. And I don't want to go too much further but the, and repeat too much. But let's get a little bit of an introduction to what I want to say this morning about that, just in case you weren't here last week. The Bible says in Hebrews nine twenty seven that it's appointed to man once to die, and after this the judgment, or to die once, and after this the judgment. And he says, Christ came and appeared once to save men. So that word once, as we mentioned, is an unusual word in the original language, meaning one time for all. You're going to die one time. There's no such thing as reincarnation, where you get to come back a million times till you get it right. That's simply an unbiblical doctrine. It may comfort some people in some way to know that they once were a bug or whatever, or grandma is this, but but it's simply not biblical. And therefore, it can't be edifying and good for you to believe that, that you're going to be reincarnated. You get one chance to live. And you're going to be judged on what you do in that one chance to live and what you do with that life. And that makes the things that you do, think, and say much more significant and important. That You take advantage of this one time. And after that, he says, comes the judgment. We'll talk a a little bit more about that as we go along. And I'm not even showing this up here, am I? Thank you for telling me. I really appreciate the help I get here. You all just like it when I... Anyway. It's important for men once to die, and then comes the judgment. And then you see that Ecclesiastes gives you a general overview in the Old Testament about this that when people die, the dust will return to the earth as it was, because man came from the earth, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So the body of man goes back into the dust in some form or another, back into the earth where it came from, and then it's also called the grave, but the spirit returns to God who gave it. So God then is in control after death of this other part of man, the living part the personal part of man that's beyond the body usually we fixture it being within the body it returns back to god for his in his care we saw in a general way then this idea of what a man is human beings have a body the body is animated and made alive by what the bible calls the soul the soul is a broad word it means life the life principle that which makes a de- makes dead flesh alive, that which makes anything alive. Sometimes the word soul is used for the whole person. Eight souls were saved through water. So it's a word that has a broad definition. And you have to look carefully in the context in which it's seen to understand this. And much confusion was made, was given by the King James Version because it used this word soul indiscriminately in different texts where the word spirit would be and so forth. But inside this body, dwells the spirit of man, which is separate from his body, and yet makes up the whole man. First Thessalonians 5.23 says that we are three then. We are body, soul, and spirit. Human beings are three in one. Just like God is three in one, united and yet at some point separate from each other. Very difficult to make these distinctions. But that's what the body says you are. And what happens then is at death, there is this separation Uh, that goes on. The body goes back to the grave. And now what Ecclesiastes said, the body goes back to the dirt, the dust that it came from. But it also pictures the spirit going back to God's care. So there's this separation between the body and the life principle and then the spirit. And the spirit of man is said, so, and I'll show you why in a moment I say this, is said to go back to a place called, go to a place called Hades. Hades in Greek. Uh, sort of the agents it begins with what we would call an A. Ah means not and ades means to see. So it's unseen. This is the realm of the unseen, that which you can't see. It's the place where the dead are. It's the unseen realm. In Hebrew a very similar word, sheol, is used. So there's this separation between the two. This is what we experience at death. This was not particularly the natural state, the way men were designed to be in the end. I don't think they were created to undergo the experience of death as we see it now. That came after Adam and Eve's sin. We were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Now we experience this death as a real separation, a much more significant separation than I believe we probably would have experienced before that. And so you then you see this uh, this experience of death being the separation of the two. are not going to go back over all that. But where are the dead? Well, when you look at where the dead are, we see we look go to Luke 16. It doesn't say at the bottom. It should say Luke 16. Jesus tells this story. Uh, by story, I don't mean something that was fictitious. I don't even think this is a parable. I think he's telling what actually happened to a rich man who lived and a poor man lived together. The rich man wouldn't even share his crumbs with this poor man. They both died. It says that that Lazarus, the poor man, was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort. And the angels came and got him as God's measures, carried the spirit away. His body, we know, was on the earth. Spirit carried away to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died and was buried. And then the rich man, it says, lifted up his eyes and found himself in torment. Where was he? Well, it says here he was in torment... And he wanted Lazarus to come over and cool his tongue with water. But Abraham said, no, you can't. he can't come over. There's a gulf between you and me. We can't cross that gulf to go to where you are. You can't come to where we are. And yet they could, I guess, communicate or see each other in this place in some fashion. He said, well, send him back to earth. Abraham says, no, he can't go back to earth. I want to warn my brothers. They're wicked like me. He says, no, he can't warn them. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear Moses and the prophets if they won't hear the prophets and Moses, they won't listen to anyone, even if they come back from the dead. So you have this reading then of this whole parable. I won't do the whole thing again. But Abraham, very clear to him that they need to hear Moses and the prophet. That's a warning to us. And that they can't come back to the earth. These spirits of the dead, like the rich man, are locked in Hades. They don't get to freely roam the earth like ghosts and for ghost stories. They don't get to come and watch you in football games. They're not here. Your memory of them may make them feel near to you. And we certainly have feelings about that. And I have feelings about that sometimes. But that doesn't mean that those feelings are real, that they really are there. If you tell me, well, I know I saw my father after he died. He was standing at the foot of the bed. Okay. I, I can't say what you saw. But I can tell you the Bible says that they didn't. that didn't happen the way you think it did. It may seem like that, but that's not the way. When, when Judy's natural mother died when she was 11, she told me that the day of the funeral, they were there after the funeral in the house, and she looked out the window, and she saw her mother drive by in a car. Little girl. What do I say to that? Lots of people told me things like that. Did her mother actually drive by in a car? I don't think so. Did she see something like that? Did her heart want her mother to drive by in a car? Yes, it did. I don't know the answer to that. What I can tell you from this pulpit is that God says that the dead are in Hades and they await the resurrection. The righteous dead are being comforted in Abraham's bosom. The wicked dead are in torment because of their wickedness. God's already placed that punishment upon them already. They are suffering in that case. And the righteous are being comforted. And that's another warning to us to remember to obey this God. Now, I want to look a little further at this real quickly because I think I didn't clarify this a little bit last week. You know, the scriptures say in Acts 2 and verse 27, here's Jesus on the cross. And one of the thieves says, this man did nothing wrong. You should not be railing at him. He did nothing wrong. We're guilty, he tells the other thief. But this man is innocent. And he said, uh, he said, asked Jesus to remember him when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, uh, uh, I'm looking at the wrong verse. I've got ahead of myself here. Uh, this is the, this is the, I didn't even look at my, who needs notes? In Acts chapter two, Peter quotes the prophecy of David about the Messiah. And the prophecy was that you will not leave my soul in Hades. That's this realm of the unseen, of the dead, unseen. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So the prophecy said that Jesus would go to Hades, but would not remain there. Jesus would go to... Now the King James gets this really confusing to people because it says hell here. But that's not the word. The word is Hades, Hades, or Sheol, the realm of the unseen, where the dead are. And it says Jesus, when he died, would go to Hades, but would not remain there. And that's the prophecy that we should remember. Now the story got ahead of myself a little bit. The thief says to Jesus on the cross, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So the Old Testament and the New in the prophecy that Peter talked about said Jesus when he died would go to Hades but not remain there. Where does Jesus say he's going to go? To paradise. So I'm going to have to conclude from that thinking about what that means logically that paradise has two compartments like we showed you before. Hang on a second here. Let me see if I got ahead of myself with this. Hades actually has two compartments. It has One side called paradise, where the spirit of Jesus went, where the thief went, where the righteous went, where Lazarus went, who was being comforted, there's a gulf in this place. On the other side of the gulf is a place of torment. That's where the wicked go, that's where the rich man found himself. Now, this is, to me, an inescapable conclusion from looking at putting these passages together as to what they mean. And this is what happens. So, if you've known someone who has died, their body is in the earth somewhere. It has, It's decomposed to whatever degree it can, given the natural elements. It's awaiting the resurrection and will be resurrected, the righteous will at least, at the end of time. And the spirit of this person that you knew is either in paradise or torment and they cannot pass either back to the earth nor between the two there's no purgatory that they spend a few years in torment and get to go to paradise like some religions teach this a gulf is fixed abraham says between the two and so that's the fact of the matter it may be unpleasant for us because we may realize our loved one a person we cared about was a wicked person and they have no we have now god can God can do what he will about the dead. But he tells us what his what he's going to do about them and unless I have some reason to contradict what he says, he says that the wicked will find themselves in torment. And you can understand that God is right and just in this. It's a hard thing to think about. I've come to understand and believe that if I when I see God as he is when I when I'm dead and the judgment day comes, I may not understand at first why things are like they are. I may not understand why I'm in paradise or why I'm in torment. I may not even know why people that have died before me are one place or the other. I may not be able to understand that because it doesn't seem like it should be. But I can tell you this. On the morning of the resurrection, when I see God as he is and Jesus comes in all his glory, he says, I will ask no more questions. I will know why things are like they are. When I see God as he is and his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his love, I will not have any problem with those who find themselves in torment being there, whether I love them on the earth or not. I will not have any problem with those who are on the other side who God says are righteous. I will not have a problem with that because I'll see God as he is and all my human misunderstandings and darkness will be gone. So that's how I reconcile that. I don't understand that now sometimes. It puzzles me. Why, to be, why does it have to be that way? Why are there only a few that are saved? I'll tell you, when the judgment day comes, you and I will understand why every knee will bow. We'll understand why every knee will bow and we'll be content with God's judgment because he's who he is. And so that ought to sober us up a little bit. Get us out of our own emotions and head and think about what the nature of God is. So where are the dead? Well, the dead are not, are conscious. He said, son, remember when you were alive, you did this and Lazarus did this. Remember, you can remember and think about this. Here's a conscious man here in, in Hades, the rich man. And they're who they were. Lazarus and this rich man did not become angels. They didn't get their wings. Another way. That's not what the Bible says. Nobody who is human on this earth becomes an angel when they die. No one. Because angels are angels, humans are humans. We are who we are. Now that's a sobering thought for some of us. That you're going to be who you are for eternity. You ought, you ought to straighten up, I think. Some of you ought to really make some changes if you're going to be like this forever. I say that sort of tongue in cheek. That's really, isn't that really true for all of us? I think that's true for all of us. Some we can see it more clearly than others. But the fact is, you're who you are. You're made as an individual. Did you know that there are no two things apparently in the universe that we can discover that are are exactly alike? We, there are no, oh, all the snowflakes are different. Yeah, that's true. Because everything's different. Every leaf on every tree, every ant, every molecule, everything in the universe is, (coughs) pardon me, they're all different from each other. God believes in diversity, if we can use that word properly. Everything is unique and different And because God is a creator beyond our wildest imagination of what he can create and what he does. Everything is unique. And all of you are unique and God knows this, he loves this, he desires this. He's not going to blend you all back into the ocean like the, the Buddhists and Hindus think. Like rain falling onto the ocean, you have these individual humans, and nirvana is when you blend into the ocean, lose your individuality, and just become part of the great, uh, eternity. That's, that's nirvana, nothingness. You become nothing. You're an individual on the earth, you become nothing in eternity. That's not Christianity, though. Christianity says you are who you are and always will be, and that's what God wants you to be. He just wants that individual to serve Him, because that's the highest good of the individual. And, and so the dead are not communicating with the, with the living or visiting the living. And we need to understand and accept that fact. It's no different than if they were on a trip in the 1800s and couldn't communicate with their loved ones. They would still be where they are. They would still be there. They just can't communicate. That's all the difference of the state of the dead from the, what they used to be. So the people that you loved, they're still there. They remember you. They remember the world that they lived in. Sometimes they have regrets about that, like the rich man. But they remember, and the righteous dead in particular remember how things were. They can't communicate about that with you. But the hope that you have in Christ, and you have this hope in no other way, in no other way you can live, you have this hope in Christ, though, is that one day you'll be reunited with these people and you'll be the same one and they'll be the same thing. Your relationships will change. There won't be any marriage or husbands, but it, it will all be better than it was, because you'll be in God's presence. And so this is what, our eternal destiny is sealed at death. There's no purgatory, no second chances, and you'll just be awaiting the resurrection. There's a, a time of waiting for the resurrection. But Hades is not the final place, of course. Hades is just a place where the dead now reside. Their spirits of the dead now reside. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13, he says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who are asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain together, remain until the coming of the Lord will in no wise precede those or prevent those who are Asleep. Now I'm going to stop there for a moment, so you get the importance of what just said there. I didn't even—I forgot to put this passage in. In John five twenty-eight, he says, "There's a day coming." Jesus himself said this: when those who are in the tombs will hear my voice, all he says, all those who are in the tombs or the graves will hear my voice and come forth. Some to a resurrection of life, and some to a resurrection of condemnation. Jesus. Himself said on the earth that there's a time when all these... And you go just outside the city of Jerusalem, now you look over the wall, if you're looking across the valley at the city of Jerusalem in the wall, you see a whole hillside, a huge hillside, covered in graves. Just covered in graves. Some of those are Jews, some of those are Muslims, Some, most of them are very old, ancient graves. And you can walk near there and see this, very interesting. But he says, all those who are in the tombs... Will hear my voice and come forth. Well, what's coming forth from the grave? The spirits? No. This is a prediction of the bodily resurrection. The only thing in those tombs are bones and dust. And Jesus said, those who are in the graves will hear my voice and come forth. His prediction in John 5.28, although it's a general prediction of the resurrection, what's being resurrected? The spirit's not being resurrected, the spirit's already there in Hades. The bodies are being resurrected. But he says here in this passage that when Christ comes again, he will bring those who are asleep with him from, I believe this passage is saying, from Hades. So at the end of time, before Christ comes, we say before, I don't know how the sequencing works, but before he comes to the earth to receive those who are still alive, Jesus is going to go, as it were, stop by Hades and pick up all the righteous dead. He's going to gather all the spirits of the righteous from Hades, and it says here he's going to bring them with him when he comes. And when he gets to the earth, those who are in the grave are going to hear his voice and come forth, and they're going to, it says, meet him in the air. Notice what else it goes on to say here. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He's got the dead, as it were, with him, the spirits of the dead with him in the sky, He's going to have, then the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. The body and the spirit are now separated. You know your loved ones in the ground decomposing. And over time they'll turn back to the dust if it lasts long enough. You understand that. It's not a pleasant thought, but that's what it is. You know that you're separated from them because you can't see them. They're in an unseen place in Hades. But now, he says, there's a time coming when in Christ. In Christ, there's a time coming when that's going to all be put back together and made right again. The body's going to come forth from the grave. The Spirit's going to be joined together with it in the air as Christ comes back to receive His own. If you're alive when Christ comes, you're simply going to be changed and altered in the twinkling of an eye and caught up with Him in the air. So all this evil, all this... Sadness is going to be made right. All this separation is going to be altered and changed when Christ comes again. Now this is the great hope of, Christ, of being a Christian. No other place you can find this hope. Other religions, world secularism, Hollywood, intellectualism, Harvard University, New York Times. None of these places can offer you this hope. Evolution cannot offer... Science, Dr. Fauci himself cannot offer you this hope. The science can't offer you the hope because it's not found there. It's only found in Christ. And this is why, no matter what other people tell you, you should cling to this hope. Whether everybody around you abandons this hope and abandons Christ, don't give up on it because this is the big promise right here. God will make it all right. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, Now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. So as an Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order: Christ the first fruits, and afterwards those who are Christ at His coming. Christ already died and was raised up; He's the first one. The first fruits is that crop that shows you what all the rest will be like. You take the first fruits, offer it to the Lord in the Old Testament. And the first fruits show you that all the rest of the crop is soon to be ready. There's always some of the crop that's ready first. You pick that, give it to the Lord. Now he says that's the way the resurrection is. And then comes the end, it says in verse 24, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So in the end, Christ, who is now the Lord, will deliver the kingdom to God and essentially take his place with his brethren. He will, We sing songs that Christ will reign forever. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say God the Father will reign forever. And Christ will not be reigning. His kingdom is from time he was crucified, raised from the dead, until the end of time. That's Christ's kingdom. And he'll take his place with his brethren. That's the great sacrifice he made. He gave up that eternal rule to save us. That's the price he paid on the cross. It wasn't having nails driven in his hands. He was giving up being like God completely forever. Becoming a man. And being saved like a man as it were in this case. With us. We can talk about that some other time. Paul goes on to say in this same chapter 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 50. Now this I say brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You want to stay in this body? You want your loved ones to stay alive? Well they can't. They can't inherit the kingdom of God. They can't really inherit what God has in mind as long as they remain flesh and blood. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Here's that trumpet again that's going to sound. Uh, And the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. He says for this corruption, this body, this body that decays must put on incorruption and the mortal must put on immortality and so forth. So anyway, this is the end of all these things. Now, There's something else involved in this though. That's a big picture. Now there's another event, another event you can insert into this whole process. We won't take too long on this because our time is short this morning. I hope you notice I'm not putting in here all the prophecies about buses in Jerusalem with the number six 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 on the license plate, and that tells them when the end's going to be, and all those kind of things everybody says all the time. Because that's not what the Bible says about all this stuff. That's human speculation. But the Bible does give you a picture and they're very, very simple events, although stupendous and marvelous beyond our comprehension. But it's not something so complex as to be pre-tribulation raptures, mid-tribulation raptures, blah, blah, blah. It's not all that stuff. The Bible doesn't teach that stuff as such. That's what humans have come out of it with. But the Matthew 25, it's a picture Jesus tells you about the end. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Now I know sometimes this imagery, this imagery is used of Jesus coming in judgment on Jerusalem or on Rome or something. It's used of these kinds of judgments. But this seems to be the final judgment in this case. Because the other judgments are going to be like the final one. They're just not going to be as complete as the final judgment. Before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. And he shall set. What does this mean? So he divides the nations. Well, we think that means he divides all the Iranians over here and all the Russians over here, all the Americans over there. No, those are kinds of people. But here's the problem that you're not getting if you don't. If you're not this is other context. One of the nations are Christians. We become a holy nation, a separate nation. I can show you this in some other passages. In God's view, one of the nations of the earth today are Christians. So we as Christians, we may call ourselves Americans, and I'm thankful that I'm an American, but that isn't the kind, that isn't what he's talking about here. I hope you found not, when that judgment day comes, I don't want to be put in the class of Americans. I don't want to be in that group of Americans. I want to be in the one that are Christ's nation, his people. And it says we're the people of God. This is what it means. We're the nation. We're the people of God. That's the nation that he separates and puts over here. So he's going to separate them out as the shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. And then he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now they ask about this. How is this going to happen? I'm not going to read the whole passage, but that's when he tells them that when I was sick, you visited me, or, or you didn't visit me. And when I was in prison, you either visited or didn't visit me. You wouldn't even give me a cup of cold water. And in the end, the king says in verse 40, he'll answer and say to the righteous, Inasmuch I I fairly I say to you, inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Then shall he also say to him on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's, again, there's this separation that takes place. Now we've seen then this picture of the dead now, at the current time, before the judgment day comes. What this passage then pictures is there's three events kind of jammed up against one another. You can separate them out, other patches separate them out, but in the course of our study today, this they're jammed up against them. One is the sec- what we call the second coming. Christ coming back, as the book of Hebrews said, a second time for judgment. The first time he came to go into the temple and offer up his blood and sacrifice. The second time he comes back to judge. And then that's a, that's pushed up together against the resurrection of the dead. And he says there's going to be a resurrection, both one to life and one to judgment or condemnation. And then there's going to be a final judgment. Judgment. The word judgment in, in the way it's used in the Bible doesn't mean passing. It doesn't mean deciding if you're guilty or innocent. We use it that way, but that's not what the day of judgment is. Your guilt or innocence has already been decided when you die. That's what the point of the story Jesus told Luke 16 is. When those two men died, it had already been decided by the way they lived whether they go one place or the other. Now when you place over the top of that the other teaching of the New Testament... It's not just about whether they're a nice person or not. It's about whether they've come and accepted Jesus Christ and been baptized in his name and put on his blood to cover them. Because all of them are sinners. The question is, do you have the blood of Christ covering your sins? That's what makes a Christian a Christian. And if you've done that, then you have some shield from the wrath of God on the judgment day. Without that, you have no shield. Because he is righteously and justly angry with you for your disobedience and your rebellion through your life. And so the judgment then is passing a final sentence. They've already been convicted. When we convict someone in one of our courts, we take we clap, we we confine them guilty. The jury does. The judge bangs the gavel. They take the guilty away back to the cells. If they're innocent, they bang the gavel. He lets you go home, and you see all the hugging and kissing on the front steps of the lawyers. Or they bang the gavel and they put you back keeping your handcuffs, or they put you in handcuffs and take you away to the cell to be held. And you stay there until the day of judgment comes, which is the day of passing the sentence. This day of judgment at the end of time is not deciding who's going to go to heaven or hell. It isn't Peter at the pearly gates passing a sentence. This is when God passes the final sentence. Depart from me, you wicked, into eternal damnation. Or come, ye blessed of my Father, come with me. That's the That's the judgment day. It's the passing of the final sentence. And so then they haul the person from the courtroom and drag them off to the penitentiary to spend the rest of their life or to to be put to death. Or they're released. Completely released, you see. So that's the nature of this. So there is either hell, which is Gehenna, not Hades in in the actual text, which is called the second death in the Bible. Or there is heaven, which is life, being with the Lord, forever those are the only two possibilities that we have and the bible is very clear about this then to say that he says that uh in verse 9 of 2nd corinthians chapter 5 therefore we make it our aim whether present or absent paul says to be well pleasing him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ knowing that uh, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done both good or bad. So you're going to appear and receive the final punishment that you deserve or exoneration. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, Paul says, we persuade men. We ought to be afraid of this day. In our frightness, it'll alter our course of thinking, our life, because we should know the terror of the Lord. And he says, we persuade people based on this, that they should, they should pursue the Lord. So we want to offer you that opportunity this morning as we close. Uh, I know we didn't go into the kind of detail that perhaps was needed, but that wasn't my purpose this morning, and I'm sure you're thankful for that. We do want to offer you the opportunity to become a Christian today if you're not. We're going to sing this song that Joel has selected, number 744, What Will Your Answer Be? We encourage you, if you haven't been baptized into Christ, to do that this very hour. Based on your belief in Christ, your faith in Him, based on your acknowledgement that He is the Savior, the Son of God, Based on the f- fact that knowing that you want to repent of the way you've been living, turn to Him and follow only Him the rest of your life. That repentance can then allow us to take your confession. Do you believe that He's the Son of God? And He says, and based on that confession, there's nothing to hinder you from being baptized. So we'll baptize you this very hour, b- bury you in water to be raised up to walk a new life, just like Paul says in First Corinthians chapter six. Can we help you today? If if this morning you already are a Christian, you'd like us to pray with you about a problem, a difficulty, a sin, whatever it might be. You come to the front row. We'll help you with that. We'll pray that God might help you and forgive you and encourage you. If that's your desire, come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.